We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Checking out the Deep Plan Mask podcast. I'm Grayson Mask. I have with me O'Neill, who is the president and co-founder of Saren Foundation, as well as uh, kind of the host of the Clean the Block initiative. Um, and also Saren Foundation has other initiatives under it. And honestly, this was kind of a conversation that popped off, you know, was able to kind of see like a few different Instagram posts. Um, from him and for like other people associated with the group and just kind of some of the cleanups they're doing around the DFW area. And this was kind of a initiative I wanted to ask questions on and kind of see the ins and outs on how something like this um, kind of comes up. I know just kind of, kind of cleaning the environment, especially in kind of these um, maybe lower income neighborhoods or just any mm -hmm. other part of Dallas, uh, is incredibly important. So yeah, I wanted to thank you again, O'Neill, for being able to take out the time today. And uh, yeah, just kind of be able to explain all this. Yeah, man. No, I appreciate you. Like I told you you're off camera, man, I love talking about this anyways. It's a passion of mine. You know what I mean? So like, it's, it's a lot that people need to understand specifically with this kind of fight. Uh, I feel as if it gets overlooked, but I think we're kind of in a stage right now where specifically urban environmentalism, of course, because of how the, the change of our climate and, you know, where we're at in terms of socioeconomics, I think this is extremely important to really, really discuss, man, really get out there. For sure. Well, I guess I really wanted to, um, like, kind of first ask, were you a, uh, are you a DFW native or where'd you grow up in? Nah, nah, that's the crazy thing is that actually my, so it's, it's interesting. I, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, my family, my mom's side, uh, Mississippi, my dad's side, Buffalo, but then my mom's side moved up to Buffalo, New York. Uh, we came down here in 2003. So I always say that, you know, I was born in the North, raised in the South. You know what I mean? And so, you know, it just uh, went to UNT for a year, went to uh, a, a college up called Austin P State University, which is like about 30 minutes north of Nashville. But, you know, my kind of how my upbringing was, and thankfully my family has been, been successful and be able to get our, our family out of a, a you know a, a possible sticky situations uh was able to really uh pursue a lot of stuff i love to pursue i did a lot of sports you know my dad was a dj back in the day so i dj's a little especially when i was in college but you know going and understanding kind of the area that we lived in and the areas that are less fortunate disenfranchised historically disenfranchised because of you know systemic whether it be systemic racism misogyny uh, anti-LGBTQ, you know, all those factors kind of create a, a, a scenario where, you know, there's a lot of income and social inequality, man. And that's something I couldn't ignore. You know what I mean? And so that's kind of where I had to rise to the occasion and, and to really try to do something about it in my own flavor. You mentioned like with your family that you're kind of uh, grew up in, like born and grew up in like and going back and forth between kind of the uh, south and like the east coast, 
Yeah. Were like the environmental issues, were they similar when it came to like your upbringing and like the South versus East Coast or were they like different problems like on like in mm-hmm. both areas? Yeah, you know, so yes, they, they are very different. I will say this though, you will find urban environmental uh, uh, inequality and injustice in every black and brown community in the United States, period. Uh, however, like you said, it looks a little bit different. I will say this though, since there is a, you know, uh, of course, it's the South, you know what I mean? So the South, of course, you know, is historically is where we've seen the black law, uh, black codes, where we've seen Jim Crow, where we've seen uh, redlining is across the United States, but where redlining really kind of hit hard, uh, specifically in, in cities in the South. I mean, even if you look at Houston, Houston is the number one polluted uh, polluted American city in the nation. And, and And of course, you know, we actually did a cleanup in Fifth Ward. And when we did it, man, it was, we were, the neighborhood that we're operating in, was right next to a steel mill that was a hundred yards away from where kids were working. It was pumping out, you know, lead and, and heavy part of particular matter. And that's the stuff that causes lung cancer, it's the stuff that causes asthma. And you find that specifically in disenfranchised black and brown neighborhoods. Now you will find those up in the north. Don't get it twisted. Because of course, where did the factories first come about in the United States? Up in the north. And what do you think? You know, you have your Irish back in the day and you had your your, your black uh, uh, great migration when they came from the south up in the north. And you've seen like my grandmother when she was working at GM over in Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, New York was called Little Detroit. So they got they had factories. And, you know, who was living near these factories? Black and brown people. And so you still find those uh, environmental constants, urban environmental constants within these black and brown neighborhoods. But they're different in every single state and every single community in a way that the culture is different. Cause of course, you know, in the South, it's the South, bro. So, you know what I mean? So it's the, the racial injustice is more on the nose than it is if you in Buffalo, New York. And you had originally mentioned like going up to uh, UNT for a little bit. And I, I remember seeing like that you went for uh poli sci. Yeah. Was that like something, um, like, were you, I guess, like motivated at an early age on like wanting to do that? Or like, did you know for a long time that you wanted to like have an impact politically? Mm-hmm. Man, you know, that's a really good question. Cause honestly, in the beginning of my life, no. You know what I mean? It was more so I did debate when I was in high school. Uh, and I was always, I was always in tune, bro. I was always in tune with, you know, uh, kind of the, the world around us. Um, but I didn't know where my, where my place was in it in, in, in a sense. And like, I didn't really start, uh, actually, you know what, I'll be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't go into wanting to go into poli-sci. I wanted to go into poli-sci to be an attorney. I never did it. And it was because specifically is, is that, you know, I found the hypo- almost the hypocrisy or the irony, whatever you want to call it, when I was in class and we're talking about, you know, we're learning and talking about racial injustice, political philosophy, yada, 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 and then not applying that same philosophy to the neighborhoods that are literally 30 minutes away. And so I, I kind of felt myself, I'm like, man, I'm, I, I don't need to sit in a classroom with a professor and learn about this shit, learn about poverty. I can go 30 minutes down south and go to South Dallas right now and talk to the people who are actually being affected by this, this systematic uh, uh, disenfranchisement. And so that's kind of where, you know, I, I started doing podcast. I, I have a media career. So when I was in, in college and I got out of college, I did, I was doing Nice of Nine. I was doing media. I started doing uh, this show called Flipside. Real Thornil came about, and from there, it kind of boom, 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 boom. It kind of, kind of developed this activist mindset until boom, twenty twenty hit, and that's really what 
I mean, 2020 was was the fire. 2020 was something that like it was it was so blatant and so in your face that I I could something I couldn't ignore. I knew it was almost like I'm a calling to really start diving into what I know I have a passion for. So I would say going back to your question, not in the beginning, but as time went on, as certain somebody got elected, uh, things changed. <laughs> On like when you're kind of bringing up like the media career, uh, I remember kind of seeing like the different roles that you had in like the media world. And it seems like you're like the different jobs you've had, like have really spanned um, like from marketing to photography to film editing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. like it seems uh, like were the skills needed very similar in the roles or did you have to like really sell yourself going from one role that to a different role that's very different? Well, I was, I'm, I'm very blessed to have, uh, you know, a creative eye. Uh, I've always had a creative mindset. I, I, a lot of it comes from both my parents. My mom is very, very arts and crafts. My dad, of course, was a DJ. So music was something that's in my blood. Uh, understanding, understanding instruments is in my blood type of thing. So like, you know, going into media, that was my original goal, actually, low key. It was, it was, I wanted to start a label. Uh, you know, I always knew, I was like, two things I always said, that my two passions are music and politics. And, you know, I, I think it's because now really thinking about it and diving into this, this, the different career paths, it all accumulated in me wanting to be able to tell a story. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing when I do Clean the Black Initiative. That's what I'm doing when, I, when I'm repping Sarah Foundation. That's what I'm doing when I'm on podcasts like this is I'm a storyteller. And that's the biggest thing when it comes to being an activist. You've got to tell a story because that's what people buy into. And so just from being with 97.9, you know, working with uh, some of my friends when they when they did you know music and and uh, being in a band and and DJing for certain certain events, just being out there deep in them all the time, like just learning people, learning the ways, learning culture and things like that. Is that what people buy into is the story that you tell, and that's a huge thing that I wanted to use as a driver for what I do in the political realm and the activist realm is tell a story while you're doing this. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, doing digital marketing, I do digital marketing right now, being a digital marketing strategist, uh, being a videographer, I love cinematography. I mean, that all is facets of my strategy of telling the story through true activism. And I saw like that you, you kind of mentioned that you're in digital marketing now. I remember saying like some of your previous work was in uh, like field marketing. Have you like enjoyed yeah. that transition of... I guess being out in the field versus um, implying those talents to like digital marketing. Absolutely, I, I like digital marketing more than field marketing, just off the rip. But like, I would say this about field marketing: it has allowed me to really, you know, I, I see field marketing as as that grind marketing. You know, what I mean, it's boots on the ground. It reminds me of canvas. I've canvassed with. I I worked on Beto's cam- uh, campaign with the Democrat, the Dallas County Democrats, uh, when he was going against Ted Cruz. You know what I mean? So like it, it definitely reminded me of that. I was a field marketer for a detox center. So I work for, I, I'm very much in the mental health industry. I, I worked digital marketing for uh, a Exalt Healthcare, which is a behavioral kind of office clinic up in McKinney. Uh, shouts out to Dr. Dr. Uh, Dr. B, Dr. Bargava. Um, you know, I worked, uh, like I said, for this detox center, man. And like, that's where I did a lot of the boots on the ground, talking to doctors, talking to to physicians, talking to caseworkers and things like that, uh, just trying to sell the good word of, of, you know, what I was doing with the detox center. But field marketing is definitely a grind marketing. I much prefer digital marketing just because I feel like you can reach more people. But 
there's I still have love for field marketing. It's still something that you got to do. I think it will never go away just because, you know, people need to see the face of who they are investing in. And that's what we do with Clean the Block. You know what I mean? Like we when we're out there, we're not just working. We're not just we're not just teaching. We're marketing. We're promoting. Uh, so the best way to promote is for people to see a face. And when you kind of mentioned like with the field marketing, um, really kind of sparking using those skills to go towards canvassing and like when you're doing canvassing for like better work and other politicians, I, I was kind of wondering, like, was there a strategy behind that? Um, you know, when it comes to like a canvassy camp, uh, canvassy, uh, campaign, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. like how, how do you succeed in something like that? Uh, man, I would say that, you know, the strategy, it, 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 a lot of the, a lot of the, the kind of roles I've played within marketing weren't necessarily part of a master plan, but it felt as if it was the next step for me to know it. Cause I, it's, and that's why I want to tell all the viewers, everybody listening right now, if you're trying to figure out what you're doing, especially in your career path and you're just bouncing around, let me tell you something. That's not a bad thing. Collect information on what you do collect skill sets because here's the thing there's a reason you're collecting these skill sets and then once you get to a point where you feel like you can transition these skill sets into a comprehensive plan that's when you do it and that's what i did you know field i didn't go to field marketing because i think it was going to help me canvas or i didn't i didn't canvas because i thought it was going to help me with field marketing i just knew that the 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 skills that i obtained from canvassing helped me with my field marketing and then the skills i obtained with my field marketing helped with my nonprofit and helped me being a campaign manager later on in my life and so that's that was the strategy in a sense that it was more so collect these skills that you know that you need because i understand where my passions were not necessarily what my purpose is but where my passions were and make sure that i can build a foundation upon that and taking those skills from like field marketing and from like the previous canvassing that you've done in like the in the role that you mentioned, like when you're a campaign manager, is that like, I guess, like when it comes to responsibilities for something like that, is that primarily like canvassing or like what are the Ooh, strategies nah. um, like w- in that type of role? Right, right. Nah, nah. Yeah, you you're doing a lot more canvassing. Let me tell you, like you you basically how I can kind of uh, describe it as you're you're the person's manager, your campaign manager, but you're managing the person because the person is the campaign. So with with uh you know Calvin and D seven when we ran, you know I was I was helping with his his political policies. I was helping with out you know getting him to events i was making sure that the donation flow was coming in correctly where our donations were coming from you know how, how do we budget that 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 um that uh, those donations uh of, did i do a lot of canvassing hell yeah but it's because one we had a small team but even if we had a large team i'd be out there because you know i'm i'm more of a lead from front type of person you know it's i, I think that leading by example is the most powerful form of leadership uh, but as a campaign manager, shit, nah, you doing, you wearing like 30, 40 hats, my friend, you doing all kinds of shit, but like it is, it was probably one of the best experiences. Shouts out to Kevin Johnson. We weren't able to, to win that race, but we're coming back. Um, but, uh, best experience I've had in a while. And I learned so much from doing it. I'm like those different responsibilities. I saw, you know, kind of the first thing you mentioned was that, you know, you were definitely helpful in like shaping policy behind that campaign. Was there any like, I guess, like policies that stick out to you most or that you enjoyed the most on helping craft? Gentrification. Gentrification. That was the number one 
uh, policy that I told Calvin and Shanita Cleveland. Shout out to Shanita Cleveland. I was at her campaign manager for a, a little bit until I had to make a career change. But uh, gentrification, I knew was going to be the hot button topic within District 7 uh, in the council race and in District 30 in the congressional race. Because where we're at right now is, I mean, look at the housing market. You look at the widening of the middle class uh, of where their wealth is and the upper class of where their wealth is. You're seeing an influx of investment where it's going into these vulnerable communities and not just black and brown communities. It's, it's vulnerable communities all over, even in the rural areas where you're having people come out and price out People who are, uh, you know, alumnus, they're, they're, they, they've been there for, for years, for decades even. Uh, and then, you know, that I knew was going to be the biggest hot button topic for the, the demographic that votes the most. And the demographic that votes the most are people who are older. And especially in these smaller races, you're going to have people who are 50 and up who are going to be voting far more likely than somebody who's going to be 30 and below. And the people who are 30 and below don't own homes. Most, and unfortunately, nowadays, they're owning less and less. And so I knew that when it comes to gentrification, when it comes to outside investment and pricing people out, it's going to affect those who are older, who have been in those neighborhoods, who care about those neighborhoods deeply. Those are going to be the people who are affected. Those are going to be the ones who are saying, hey, gentrification is is pricing us out. They're strong arming us, eminent domaining. There was I'm literally just watching or I was watching or listening to K104 this morning. And they had a story about a woman who was on this land. I forgot where they were. I don't know if it was. It wasn't in Texas, but she was getting strong armed and sued by a developer that was buying land around her. And they were trying to strong her out, out of her land and trying to get him in a domain. Tyler Perry, shouts out to Tyler Perry. He came out in support of this woman to make sure that she had the, 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 the counsel, the, the, the legal counsel to be able to fight this lawsuit. But even like that, that is not just, that's not the only case of those kinds of, of, predatory, exploitative, discriminatory practices and policies that we're seeing that's affecting these communities. And that's why gentrification was so important and still is important. And you mentioned some of the uh, stories today, like um, with Tyler Perry and others uh, and other voices kind Mm -hmm. of bringing light to an imminent domain. Mm -hmm. I was curious, like, are you, I guess, like confident, um, or like less confident when it comes to, uh, I guess, gentrification, like more people coming aware of it mm-hmm. or like policies that could combat it, um, mm-hmm. like moving forward? You know, I'm, man, that's tough because I'm, I'm seeing it more and more. Um, gentrification has been an issue in our country for, for decades, you know, even centuries in many cases in terms of, you know, Black towns and black, back in the day, black towns were just burnt down to the ground and now they're getting, what I, this is what I call gentrification, is the recolonialization of black lands. And so am I seeing a fight? Yes. I think the biggest issue a lot of times that I've seen that is, I think, being remedied today and more recently is how you define gentrification. A lot of times people didn't know how to define gentrification because from face value, gentrification just looks like a neighborhood getting better, a neighbor, you know, outside investment there, there, there's more businesses, there's more uh, an influx of people who are spending money in the neighborhood. So you're like, well, isn't that good? Isn't that what you want? And what people don't understand is that, and that's why the Sarah foundation 
emphasizes on the socioeconomics and not just the economics. Because when it comes to economics, you had to understand that economics only exists when there is a society that's the one that's operating that economics. And so when it comes to the social aspects of gentrification, it is overlooked. And that's the reason why we're seeing such a widening of, 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 of wealth uh, and, the, and the gap between it because People are being gentrified and not just black people. And I think the big, I think the reason why people are taking more attention because white people are getting gentrified too. And, you know, it's just, it's the same shit when it came to, listen, it's the same shit that it came to like pharmaceutical companies and the drug epidemic in this nation. I mean, look at it. When, when there was a crack epidemic, it was a war on poverty. It was a war on, on, on drugs. But whenever there was a opiate crisis and it affected a certain demographic, all of a sudden we had to look at mental health. We had to look at how to help people. We got to see, maybe we had to reel, reel back the, the pharmaceutical companies. And so I think we're seeing a version of that with gentrification today that we didn't see a couple decades ago. And you kind of mentioned like earlier um, with some of these stories and you kind of mentioned the importance when it comes to telling these stories and with some of these policies, like the importance of like knowing how to tell a story and how to craft a story behind, um, you know, one of these issues. I was curious, like on like what point in kind of 2020, like what happened uh, before the Clean the Block initiative that I guess really made, what was the breaking point on this idea coming about? Man, I, before 2020, I, I was doing uh, political podcasts and political shows. And I talked about this type of stuff, right? When 2020 came about, man, it, it basically told me that I need to stop talking about this shit and just start actually doing it. You know, it's 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 great. It's great to talk about these issues. Great to, and that was my that was my strategy at the time. I was like, you know, maybe if I'm able to create a a media empire or whatever, you know, or and, and get the word out on certain on certain issues, key issues that we all need to be talking about, then we I'll be able to spur change. You know how many political pundits are doing that already? You know how many people are on podcasts or how many people on TikTok? How many people are already doing that? And don't get me wrong. We need that. That is a that is a part of the fight. That is a huge part of the fight. But the, also the other part of the fight is the action behind our words. And so I didn't feel I didn't feel like I was doing enough by talking about the issues and not trying to solve those issues. And so when 2020 came about, man, 2020 changed my perspective on society. It changed my perspective on how you do activism. Uh, I saw a collapse of certain principles in this nation. Uh, I, I was, we all were uh, uh, basically uh, 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 just, we saw the hypocrisy behind our government. We saw the hypocrisy behind, you know, the, the labor, the labor movement, essentially, you know, we, we there was so many Americans that still had to work during the pandemic that were deemed heroes and all of a sudden we can't pay them a fair wage. So that tells me that we consciously know that we're under we're underpaying our laborers. We're underpaying, we're we're not valuing labor in this nation. And so that's just one fight. But then of course the fight when it comes to the the my my community, black community, and black and brown community in essence, is that you know, we were the most we're the hardest hit by the pandemic. And, you know, we were the ones who created this movement. We were the ones who got people outside. We're the ones of people who got people talking and we got all these people talking. And let, let me tell you something, this and everybody that's listening, because this is true. The 2020 Black Lives Matter protests were the biggest, it was the biggest 
example in history of a of a civil of, of a civil rights movement. It was bigger than the civil rights movement in 1960. It didn't last as long as the 1960s, but in in one demonstration, it was the largest demonstration in human history. There were there were Black Lives Matter protests in 64 out of the 196 countries, I believe. It was 64 countries that were were participating in this movement, which tells me that there is a there is a need there is a uh, an awakening of of the labor movement of, of of people in the in the labor class that understands that there is a massive massive undertaking when it comes to 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 uh, making sure that gap doesn't widen even further that wealth gap widen even further or the social gaps widen even further and so from there man I was like shit. I'm done talking about this shit. It's time to go. It's trying to it's trying to get to work. I'm about to be about this action. And when 2020 ended, man, that's when I jumped on Calvin Johnson's uh, Calvin Johnson's uh, candidacy or his campaign. Uh, and then after that was immediately when I started the Sanger Foundation. On that idea of 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement, and you're kind of saying like how it was the uh, I mean kind of the largest movement, e- even though it wasn't as I guess, uh, long as the 1960s. Do you think like at any time soon, like there would be something bigger than that or was just 2020 just too, uh, I guess like such Mm -hmm. a crazy year that it would, it wouldn't be able to be topped. Mm -hmm. So 2020 is a precursor to something larger period. Uh, I think that, no, no, excuse me. I believe that there will be a larger revolutionary style protest that will occur, um, whether it starts in the United States or not, I'm not sure. But while our political elites and our financial elite, uh, while they continue their, their campaign against the lower and middle class, the lower middle class are going to get to the point where they revolt. It happens every single time in human history. You see it over and over again. However, it's going to depend upon the organizers, the local leaders, um, the the revolutionaries, in essence, and the activists, if they want to make sure that the organization of this revolution becomes a feasible, a, a or not excuse me, not a feasible, but but a true a true movement that will bring about the change that we want to see. Because the forces are be are definitely going to try and are trying right now, trying to this very second to stop that uprising. They're doing it right now. They're doing it yesterday. They're doing it in the future. And so they're prepared. Are we? That's the biggest question. And on that development of like the uh, kind of the precursor and what everything that led to the Clean the Block initiative. So on kind of like the first step when it comes to developing this organization did you just like go out individually and start trying to, um, you know, clean a local community member's house? Or were you trying first to set up those connections when it comes to like the city of Dallas? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what was like the first step? Basically, you know, I knew that I wanted to create the Saren Foundation first. The Saren Foundation was the first thing, and Saren, y'all, is S-E-R-U-N. It stands for the Socioeconomic Revitalization of Urban Neighborhoods. And so basically what I wanted to create was an organization, a foundation, in essence, that would able to empower and mobilize local leaders and HOA, HOA block club leaders 
activists and local politicians to be able to get the resources they need to be able to do the good work that they're trying to do. Because this is the biggest issue right now, y'all. We don't have a a lack of leaders. We don't have a lack of ideas. We don't have a lack of of passionate people in our neighborhoods. They're everywhere. You just got to look. However, the problem is that they don't have two things. One, they actually don't have three things. The support, the resources, and the organized and the organized uh, uh, the organized manner of, of which to do so, how to mobilize those resources and that support. And so, I wanted to create a foundation that could be the springboard to all those who are fighting in their neighborhoods and get them the resources and the interconnectivity of neighborhoods. Because I'll be honest with you, Oak Cliff should be talking to South Dallas. South Dallas should be talking to East Dallas. East Dallas should be talking to Compton, California. We should be talking to the South side of Chicago. We should be all these organizations, all these neighborhoods and communities should be interconnecting with one another to make sure that everybody has the resources that they need to be successful and to mitigate some of the issues that historically have, have been either disenfranchising them or bringing them injustice. And so going to Clean the Block Initiative, I wanted to create something, one that I knew was something that's an immediate effect. It's a visible, a visual effect. So I was like, man, what's the first thing, you know, were you in the hood, bro? What's the first thing you see, man? If, you, if you're paying attention, it's trash, trash is fucking everywhere, bro. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's, it's the most obvious and blatant example of racial and systemically economic injustice because of all the the different facets of why there's so much trash on the ground everywhere and it's not just a cultural thing it's not cultural it's not just cultural because culture culture is is morphed by the environment that it it's created in and so whenever you look at redlining whenever you look at at uh, housing discrimination and and not being able to access wealth uh, and then the building of of you know factories and and railroads right next to railroads cutting straight through neighborhoods you're getting it creates a mentality of helplessness and hopelessness to the point where what does everybody want to do? They want to get out the hood. They don't want to stay in the hood. They want to get out the hood. And so if everyone's trying to get out the hood, they have no respect for the neighborhoods that they're in. If there's no respect for the neighborhoods, then they don't give a fuck if they're, if they're throwing trash on the ground, even though it's not, it's not our fault, but we still have to be accountable as a people to understand that these are the, these are the reasons why our culture has gotten to this point. And now it's up to us to make sure that not only can we fight the powers that be, but we take care of our home. I always say this to people, man, if you don't want people coming into your house and throwing trash on the ground, why would you want the same thing in your neighborhoods? Why would you want the same thing at your parks, at your schools, at your churches? I shouldn't go to church and walk outside and see bottle cans fucking everywhere. That That is a disrespect to yourself and a disrespect to the, to the neighborhood that your mama ran. Well, that's what Jay-Z be saying, bro. Don't don't shoot up this neighborhood your mama ran because it's it's where y'all live. It's where we boil and create creativity in our culture. It's it's pure. It's 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 great. It's, it's a foundation for success. And so that foundation success starts at the home. And I'm not talking about your home. I'm talking about your neighborhood. I'm talking about your community. Don't let anybody come to your community and trash your shit. Why would you do that? And so Clean the Block Initiative is based upon the, the understanding of urban environmentalism, which is a form of environmentalism, of course, that looks at the ecosystem of, of the urban environment. It looks at how, or, you know, what, how much, lead is in the air. It looks at, you know, if you have brown fields in your community, it looks at what your what your water levels look like, what's the pH levels in your water. It's the health. Because Clean the Block Initiative, truly, even though I say it's urban environmentalism, 
What it really is, is an health initiative. We're looking at the health of the environment because the healthy environment will dictate the health of the people. With that, with that, like being like the, I guess, like the first stage in that clean up block and initiative and kind of the, being the aesthetic and, uh, you know, helping the community clean up like some of these different areas. What's been like your favorite, I guess, like cleanup so far? And mm-hmm. uh, I was curious on like the results and like how you're able to get everyone to come out um, to clean the area. Oh, yeah, man. Favorite one for sure. This one was uh, one that was close close to home. Um, the Buffalo grocery store tops the shooting. We were blessed enough to do a cleanup right in front of the grocery store. Um, that one was the most um, difficult, but it was the most, uh, I was blessed enough and it was the most rewarding one to do, to be in a neighborhood that's a community that my family lives in. My family lives close to there. I mean, my one of my my uncle he he goes to, and shops at that grocery store at Tops, and so we were able to contact the city of Buffalo. Uh, I have a a cousin that uh, works at a church that owns a church, um, and so I contacted the church. Uh, we were at the time working with another organization that was able to give us um, some resources in terms of tents banners, signs, flags, and things like that to make sure that we can create an activation area. Um, I worked with the Buffalo PD, shouts out to Buffalo PD, that gave me specific areas and locations within the community that needs the most help in terms of trash and that that was most affected by uh, illegal dumping. And of course, you know, the, 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 another thing I want to just a little caveat here, guys, is that, you know, with Clean the Block Initiative, one of the things that really started as well was I took two heat maps to the heat map of crime. And I took a heat map of where illegal dumping was. And sure as shit, you see an overlay. You see where there's where there's high, high crime and waste mismanagement, or excuse me, high illegal dumping and waste mismanagement. You're going to find more crime. And I'm talking about a a crime that spans from robbery, murder, prostitution, drug peddling. You'll see all of those in areas that has high amounts of waste mismanagement, litter, and illegal dumping. And so, again, when I was in Tops, same shit. And this is where I was talking about when we were talking about before that, you know, is the communities different? Yes and no. You know, yes, of course, culture is different in Buffalo, New York than it is in South Dallas. But you're still seeing the same effects of where there is where there is crime, you'll see trash. Where there's trash, you'll see crime. And so in the area of Buffalo, we were able to to bring out a lot of people. We went out there with with me and uh, my my director of communication, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Easley, a.k.a. Inky B. Shouts out to Inky B. Um, we went out with our flyers and knocked on doors, bro. We were there a week in advance. We knocked on doors. We passed out flyers. We went to we went to uh, uh, radio stations. We went to local. We love going to local restaurants and stuff like that. We want to be in the areas that people are, that people commute, that com- people habitate, because that's how you get to the folks, bro. I mean, do do we run a digital campaign while we're doing it? Absolutely, because when we get there, we want people to be like, oh yeah, I saw it on Facebook perfect now i really got you now you're really gonna come out because you know something's about to come up and so like that's that's kind of the strategy that we do and that's when i was telling you you know that field marketing slash canvassing that's how it gets married to the digital marketing digital marketing strategy and the campaigns behind it and so that's what we did for buffalo um that's what we did for fifth ward houston that's what we do in dixon circle 
That's what we did at Valero uh, Apartments. That's what we did at Deer Path. That's what we did at Butterbeans. You know, we go all over the place, y'all. And we're about to be in Alexandria, Louisiana, about to do the same thing. Most of the times what we do is we have a checklist of those who are the most important stakeholders. So uh, we'll reach out to a, to dozens of, of city officials, try to get the, the councilmen and, and women out, try to get the mayor out. Uh, the specific departments that would be associated with this, whether it be sanitation, nuisance abatement, uh, if they have a, you know, some sort of environmental department, uh, all municipalities are a little bit different, but if they have something, we put, we reach out to them. We reach out to the churches, the mosques, the synagogues. We reach out to the political parties in the area. We reach out to the restaurants in the area. We reach out to the, the fraternities and sororities in the area. You hit all of these places where people habitate and spend their money and you let them know what you were doing and you'll get those people out there, bro, because that's what we want. We want to empower the community and then mobilize the community. When you're kind of mentioning like on like going from door to door after like already kind of doing a digital marketing campaign to kind of bring people aware about what you're in the community for, do you ever like get into situations where you're approaching someone with uh potentially different political beliefs. I, I know like uh, I remember seeing the video you kind of talked about on your Instagram of systemic racism and uh, kind of seeing like some of the, I think, smelting or some mm-hmm. type of um, pollution uh, plants um, that was mm-hmm. causing pollution in the communities. And, you know, there was comments that were kind of disagreeing with your story or your opinion. I'm kind of wondering if you like ever approached that and, do you want to bring them into your line of work or are you fine like not bringing them into like your type of work? Uh, you know, I was wondering what your approach was. Yeah, I will fight with anybody who wants to fight with me. You know what I mean? Like my second my second uh, cleanup that I did, I reached out to the Dallas County Democrats and the Dallas County Republicans and they both showed up. And it's I, I, I know I think I know which video you're talking about. They will definitely they definitely didn't, will, I, I, is a thing. I give grace. I give grace to people. I understand that they don't understand and they might see it as an attack or of course they they get drowned out by right wing media and right wing right wing dogma and and you know talking points. I get it. You don't understand because you're not in the neighborhood and you don't understand because you don't know historically what's going on. Now, I'm not going to let you stop us because I'll be honest with you, your opinion, even though you have one and you're you are you have a right to your opinion, your opinion doesn't do shit for me or my people. And so Though I will engage, I typically don't engage with any real seriousness because if you really, truly want something to change, then you will actually reach out to me personally and be like, how can I, I don't agree with you. And this is why I don't agree with you, but why, why do you say the things you do? And why is it different from what I think? I can respect that. And, and the reason why I, I will still get conservatives that come out to our cleanups, because at the end of the day, you're cleaning up the community. That's bipartisan. I don't care why you think that there's trash on the ground. There's trash on the ground. And that's why I want to start start the Sarah Foundation with something that's extremely bipartisan, that's bring everybody together. Because at the end of the day, we like cleanliness. We don't want people to live in their own filth. And so that's something that both conservatives and liberals can understand and progressives can understand is that, man, though there is a misunderstanding or miscommunication in terms of why or how or if climate change exists or, or, or you know, or maybe uh, uh, pollution and how we're supposed to manage it. 
I can take you physically to any portion in any city in America. I don't care if it's large or small. And I can take you to an impoverished portion of that city or town. And I guarantee you there will be trash. Why? And so that's and, and white or black. It doesn't matter. And so that's why I'm like, I don't care if you believe what I believe in. What I do care about is, do you want to see this problem go away? And if you want to see this problem go away, come work with me with the Center Foundation. And I wanted to touch up on like the part um, kind of earlier um, when it kind of brought you out into some of those communities because of like illegal dumping. And you're mentioning like illegal dumping being connected to uh, increases in crime in different areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like. Can you break down like what illegal dumping uh, looks like? Is that by is that done by private citizens or is it done by private companies? And like, how do you keep people alert for something like that? So it's it's both. It's a little bit of both. We see um, a lot of times people from outside of communities illegally dump. Uh, not saying it doesn't come from the neighborhoods, from inside the neighborhoods, but it definitely is a problem of. Those a lot of time and a lot of times you'll see, you know, people who are dumping mattresses or, you know, uh, uh, construction equipment like, you know, wood or, or dry drywalls and things like that. You know, toilets and stuff that they throw away, whatever it may be. Uh, but I'll give you an example of an issue of illegal dumping that kind of personifies the issue, personifies the problem. Excuse me. Um, you know, it, it's uh, Shingles Mountain. I don't know if you heard about Shingles Mountain uh, that happened in, in Southeast Dallas, where there was a company out of McKinney, Texas. Of course, if y'all don't know where McKinney, Texas is, it's in Collin County. Collin County being one of the, the most affluent counties in Texas, uh, there was a, a company that was dumping shingles in the neighborhood that was right behind houses. And it was so much that you can go out there and you can smell it burn, y'all. You can smell it. You can You can smell the chemicals in the air to the point where... They took tests and people were increased at increased risk of asthma and lung cancer. And I'm talking about in, in kids and in the elderly. And it was such a fight to get it removed that it took national news to break about it, to even get the city of Dallas to acknowledge that it was happening. And it was because there was development going on that had something to do with the community that was dumping shingles. And so this is what we talk about when we say there is systemic oppression, there are systemic problems that happen deeper than just the codifying of racial laws or the codifying of inequality. It, it goes to the point where there's such a a ease of exploitation in these neighborhoods because these neighborhoods don't have the ability to to fend for themselves because they don't have the support they don't have the resources and they don't know how to mobilize that's why that's our mission statement because without those three things you cannot you cannot solve those issues that have historically been plaguing your neighborhood and going back to your your question you know is there a way to stop it absolutely it requires a a concerted effort and the and the partnership between the local for-profits nonprofits in the city to make sure that there is an understanding and eyes on areas that get illegal dumping so we work with new Bayman coke appliance you know we whenever there's an area where we're seeing a lot of legal dumping we tell them to put cameras up and signs and all of a sudden you don't see illegal dumping over there anymore and it could be that simple and then 
to, to make sure that it doesn't happen again. We're, we're educating folks on the top 10 code violations because a lot of times people don't know what the top 10 code violations are. You're not going to look up what a, a code violation is until you got a motherfucking ticket. And so that is also another part of, of how you stop illegal dumping, waste mismanagement, and litter is you mobilize community, especially those who, who truly care, like the local leaders, the HOA members, the block club members, and things like that, who, are, who have eyes on the neighborhood. You give them the resources to make sure that they can put cameras up and signs up and 311 call uh, signs up so people know that to call 311 and not 911 whenever they see illegal dumping. You make it so that you have eyes on certain plots of land and vacant lots that are easy targets for illegal dumping and, and waste mismanagement. Why not put something there for kids to play on? Because when kids play somewhere, a lot of times you're not going to see trash and litter because people understand they don't want that around their kids. Maybe you go in and you and you you have a, a block parties on those plots of land and make sure that people have eyes on the plots of land so that you're not inviting certain certain criminal activity that that feeds off of the the neglect of portions of the neighborhood because that's where you see crime at is portions of neighborhoods and communities that are neglected. You don't neglect those areas anymore. That crime activity needs to be dispersed and it gets saturated to the point that they can't operate in those neighborhoods. And so that's the strategies that you must have, but it has to take a concerted effort between the partnership of the city, the local leaders in the area, the activists, and the for-profits in the area. You're bringing up like some of the top 10 violations when it comes to like, um, I guess how someone has their home, but like, what's like the, I guess, what's the most common violation you see, like when you're doing these cleanups or is there like a top one that you've noticed? I would say some of the top ones, uh, we've seen high weeds, of course, will always be one of the top ones, high weeds, um, trash on trash on, on plots of land, um, uh, cars are leaking oil because they're they're not they're not run you know they they're not functional they're not operational anymore so that could be a code violation. Paint chipping, um, you know the mis the mis um, the mismanagement of of uh, paint and other other elements or other other trash that has chemicals or whatever it may be. Um, th- those are basically the main ones that you'll see. Of course, you'll see different ones that are, are more uncommon. But I would say the main ones is high weeds, high trash, uh, paint chipping, and having a car that's <laughs> leaking oil that's not functional anymore that's in your driveway. That is a code violation, and those can run up a lot, a lot of dollars. For sure. Well, I guess to wrap everything up, um, you know, I honestly wanted to ask with the organization right now, uh, is there any other upcoming projects or anything that you're excited about for this year um, when it comes to the organization or with any of your projects under Clean the Block Initiative or anything like that? Absolutely. So we are are working out, but we are finally getting ready to really launch our newest program called Get Up to Code. So Get Up to Code, and just like we just talked about, it it goes over the top code violations that afflict an area and help mitigate those people with those code violations. Right now, we're gonna be targeting specifically elderly, veterans, and disabled. We did one Get Up to Code uh, off of Saddlebrook, for, or I'm not gonna say it, but it was over in Saddlebrook, um, but, we basically helped this lady that was living in her home for over 50 years that, you know, there was uh, paint chipping. Her, her garage had wood that was rot, rotten. 
there was overgrown trees. Uh, a storm just came through like a week before we were out there. So there was branches on top of a roof. There was holes on top of a roof. There was a tree that was growing on our neighbor's yard. So we were able to work with code compliance. Shouts out to Adrian from code, uh, from code being able to provide us with uh, Code Cares, which is a program that allows us to use a lot of their equipment like chainsaws, pole saws, lawn mowers, things like that to go out there and uh, help her with the code violations, man. We mowed her lawn, we cut down branches, we took out an old rug that was in her house, we swept, we mopped, we made sure that she was good, and we made it to the point where she was no longer under threat of a code violation. Those code violations, y'all, are a financial burden on our neighborhoods, and they can accumulate. So Get Up to Code is something that I'm very, very excited about. And y'all, if y'all can help me out, find sponsors, find people who can donate to this program, to the Sarah Foundation, be able to make sure that we can do a Get Up to Code for every single neighborhood in Texas, then in America. And so Get Up to Code, man, I'm super, super excited because we can really we can really take the numbers and see how much money we're saving the city and we're saving the neighborhood of code violations. So check out Get Up to Code, y'all. <laughs> no, for sure, Nell. Like, I, I mean, kind of with that project, I mean, it sounds like extremely important for anyone in the community that potentially could break a code and, uh, you know, face more financial obligations just because of maybe a small infraction or something that they didn't even know was, you know, against the code. And, yeah. uh, you know, I really wanted to just be able to thank you again. Um, you know, not everything, not just about everything that you're able to talk to about, like the ins and outs of um, Clean the Block and with the Saren Foundation and everything else you're doing in the community, but also just kind of explain your journey and everything that kind of led to this. Uh, you know, I think you're still doing a lot and uh, you're doing a lot now and have a lot more in the future for the DFW community. And I think this is very important when it comes to, I guess, like the urban environmentalism and mm -hmm. just cleaning the kind of uh, cleaning the community. Um, you know, really absolutely. wanted to thank you again. I think it's really important. No, man, I appreciate you, man. Like, I, I, again, like I said, I love talking about it. I love that you have a platform for people like myself to be able to talk about this. Um, you know, it takes people like yourself, man. Like, I, I, you're doing and you're doing right now what I wanted to do. And it, it seems as if like it almost like I'm now on the other side. Like, I, like it's it allows me to, to understand, like, this is what we need to talk about. And people like yourself to grow your platform and grow your your influence to make to be able to give a voice to more folks like myself that are just doing the hard work, trying to get the grind going. And so, man, I appreciate you. For sure, man. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.